0: The big thing we think about in either case in terms of strategy is what level of intent does our prospective audience have about this product? And we will we'll almost create like a bullseye, like concentric circles based on level of intent. So the center of the bullseye will be someone who's already purchased, or maybe they've gone to the site and added the product to their cart. The question we need to answer for them is like, why now? Why, mm-hmm. How do we activate that?
1: Welcome to Top of Mind, a show where we speak with top marketers, creators, and leaders who are shaping the culture around us. I'm Stuart Hillhouse, and I believe that through great marketing, you can earn the privilege of occupying a tiny sliver of your customers' already overflowing brain. Join me today as we learn what it takes to become top of mind. You may or may not have noticed a shift that's happened over the last few years. It started off really slow, and then it happened all at once. Maybe you're part of that change. Maybe you're indifferent, or maybe you're even actively trying to avoid it. I'm talking about direct-to-consumer brands. Direct-to-consumer, or DTC, as we'll probably refer to it for the rest of this conversation, are brands that choose not to sell through brick and mortar retail locations. Instead of you having to come to their storefront, they bring the storefront to you through different channels. But the D2C and e-commerce landscape is quickly evolving. New strategies of having both physical and digital storefronts have emerged as some D2C brands have gotten big enough to become household names. To help us get a grip on how the best e commerce brands leverage digital channels to their advantage, I'm joined by the CEO of a performance marketing agency that's helped brands like Dollar Shave Club, Hubble, Birchbox, and some of your favorite mobile apps acquire new customers and grow their reach. I'm pleased to be joined by the CEO of Ampush, John Oberlander. Welcome to Top of Mind, John.
0: Thank you, Stuart. It's great to be here.
1: Before you joined Ampush, you worked as a futures trader, a corporate attorney, and a professional poker player. So all pretty analytical job titles, I'd say. Can you tell me what was going on in your mind at the time when you decided you wanted to get into digital marketing?
0: Yeah, for sure. So I've been in Ampush since the beginning. So that's almost 10 years. It'll be 10 years this July. And as you mentioned, I, I spent my 20s experimenting in a few different professional directions, many of which built on like a skill and an enjoyment of analytical reasoning or proposition gambling or things at that nexus. And I think one thing I realized was that I I wanted to work in a place where the culture and the problem set was more aligned with my tolerance for, and, and frankly, like passion for risk and resourcefulness and more creative problem solving. And so I met our founder and prior CEO, Jesse, serendipitously you know i was 30 i was looking for something more entrepreneurial and different ampush was just getting into the facebook marketing like performance marketing space and it just it just seemed like a really great fit it was an opportunity to use the same analytical skills or ability to like see numbers changing on a screen and attribute that to certain actions and make decisions but it was a lot more creative than being like a trader or a poker player and then startups only five people that's a really exciting time to be a jack of all trades and come in and help in lots of different vectors so that's what was going through my mind there was a little bit of like man i was paid a lot as an attorney at a big firm <laughs> and this is going to be very different but generally the excitement you know outweighed the risk factor and so yeah i, I moved to san francisco in mid 2011 to get started
1: are there any skills that you acquired through those like analytical jobs that you recommend marketers get kind of a baseline understanding of?
0: Yeah, I, I think the big skills and we, we train our analysts in this are deductive and inductive reasoning, sort of like seeing a change in, in this case, performance of a campaign or a certain ad or with a certain audience. And then very rationally thinking through well, what what changes did I make, which are likely directly attributable to doing that, and how do I use that information to make better decisions? So yeah, the best poker players are considering the environment and then making decisions on their play based on that. Same thing with with marketers and especially performance marketers where you have these data sets. I think that skill was first and foremost. And then, you know to some degree, being in like a services business, Also stuff I'd learned about client relationships, communicating things, you know, to or to my audience correctly, you know, and and then also like seeking ways to innovate, not just optimize a little bit, but like, let's rethink the problem completely. That stuff has translated very well.
1: And I'm sure you've had to do that so many times as like Facebook and just ad buying and, and performance marketing has gone from cowboy country and everything was made up and you could find a loophole so qu- easily and use it for a few days and make a ton of money. And then it's just gone the next day and you have to totally reevaluate your whole strategy.
0: Yeah. The, I mean, that, that's part of what I loved, right? Is like the when, when I was an attorney, you do things that someone's already figured out how to do with a standard of perfection. This was like, nobody knew how to do it. You're going to make a ton of mistakes. But if you can crack something, at least for some period of time, you have this massive edge on the market. You can help a company grow much faster or you can hit an audience much more skillfully. And so, yeah, it's it evolved rapidly the first five years. It slowed down a little. But interestingly, as of a week ago with iOS 14 privacy changes, it's another whole new paradigm. And I'm going back to my analyst days like, man this is, we got to rethink how we optimize, how we segment, how we did all these things that had been kind of figured out are, are back in the fray again. And so, yeah, I, I think that's super fun.
1: How is the pitch? You mentioned the professional services side of it. How has your pitch changed from 10 years ago, acquiring customers to how you describe what you do for your clients now?
0: Yeah, it, it's changed a ton. It's a good question. So I, like, I'll usually explain Ampush in two phases. And Ampush was founded by three Wharton grads with fairly traditional, like, banking, consulting backgrounds who brought the, like, we're going to be analytical about this problem mindset. And in the first phase, let's say 2011 to 2015, we grew up as one of Facebook's largest partners focused on direct response and mobile and using those analytical skills just to, like, bid smarter and and handle the problem well. And so, you know, our pitch wasn't that differentiated from some other companies then, other than, like, Our people are really smart and you need this. And I think for a while, that was great. We doubled in size every year. You mentioned we worked with Dollar Shave Club. We worked with like Uber, marketplace business, like on the supply side, doing driver acquisition globally, mobile gaming companies. And so really like for four or five years, just massive demand and we just had to be good. We had to have the right talent and stay current. I think by 2015, 2016, that was becoming more of a commodity. Facebook, like their tools were better, people understood it better. it was it was less differentiated. And we actually just wanted to be wanted our business to be really interesting, fun for people, not get into the efficiency business of a peer agency and to be a unique solution. So the way we did that and our pitch evolved with it, is we said, well, let's become the best partner to direct the consumer companies like at the stage when they're hitting a growth plateau and let's presume they have great product market fit, they want profitable unit economics, and they want to get back to hockey stick growth. Like the things they're saying typically are like, well, we did 20 million in revenue last year, we raised our series A, if we can double this year and next year, and we improve our LTV to CAC by 20%, you know, we're going to raise this next round at a crazy valuation, or so-and-so is going to acquire us for however many hundreds of millions of dollars. And then we're the company that says, great, we can make sure you actually realize those dreams. We can de-risk that journey because we've built capabilities now that go through the full funnel of activation, including like ad creative across all digital landing pages and the full conversion funnel, all the analytics associated with that, offer testing, getting different voices in market. We own and operate a, a number of review sites and have some like, White labeled influencers we partner with to get voices outside the brand and market to a topic I know we're going to go to. And we just, we needed to become the best at that. So we went from working with like 60 clients to now we have less than 20 partnerships. We dedicate teams to solving their specific problems. Agency is the easiest way to understand our business, but we don't love that categorization because it's much more of a partnership. Like we assume risk. We only get paid when we're as good as we, you know, as we plan to be. Mm-hmm. And so, just it changes the whole risk profile for the company.
1: Something that I didn't totally understand coming from kind of a content side of marketing to now uh, learning about the growth and performance side of marketing which is super data driven whereas content is data driven in, in different ways though you're trying to map you're trying to optimize for different things. Yeah. One of the things you mentioned there was talking about like the lifetime value LTV of a customer and being able to engage them all the way through the funnel as like someone who has never heard of your company and has no idea that they have a problem, all the way to kind of figuring out that they have a problem and that you're the best solution and then actually converting them and then getting paid, which is what those companies need to stay afloat is actual money in the bank because sometimes, like you were saying, you worked with mobile games. Most mobile games are free until you want to buy the upgrades. And so can you help me to understand what a revenue event is and how that plays so heavy into your strategy and and helping your, your clients?
0: yeah absolutely. So revenue event is I mean, it most simply like the point at which the the cash register rings for one of these companies. And so in a mobile gaming company, many of which are freemium, the app download is free. There's no revenue event yet. It's like the first point of monetization they spend you know, $5 for some item or to accelerate or to gain in-game currency. And for an e-commerce company, a subscription business like Hubble, it's someone putting down a credit card to get that first box, even if it's discounted. And then, you know, for like a a multi-SKU e-commerce company, it's that first purchase, which may or may not be the first of many. And, you know, we'll we'll also think about the magnitude of that purchase in all those cases. So, in a subscription, it may be singular, but in multi-SKU e-commerce, it's, what is the AOV, the average order value? And in mobile gaming, typically those freemium models allow you to spend as much as you want. So it's like, how how frequent of a buyer and how big of a whale is this customer? Like, How passionate are they to invest money into this, this form of entertainment?
1: Yeah. And so you need to pay attention to that time between we're now spending money on ads to try and acquire this individual... It might be one ad, it might be a hundred, not a hundred, but it might be 10 ads before that person finally takes an action. But even that action, you're probably like, you might not get paid. And in, in the case of a freemium game, you might show the ads three or four times. Finally, they download the ad, but no one's getting paid when an ad gets, when an app gets downloaded. So then you have to move them from being a casual gamer to wanting those in-game purchases. Is is that, am I getting that right? Or is that uh, not nuanced enough?
0: No, that that's right. And depending on how high consideration the product is, that journey could take a long time and a number of touch points, or it could be one fell swoop. So
1: you, Let's talk about physical products for a little bit. Maybe an example of a very short time to revenue. And then we'll talk about like a very long time to revenue and how you kind of go about designing a strategy for that.
0: So a short time to revenue, I think we've already mentioned Hubble Contacts. Let's use that one. So Hubble sells sells daily contacts, only dailies. They have a particular brand. And generally, it's like a comparatively affordable option versus some others. And that's really attractive to a certain set of the population. And it's obvious like it has all the appropriate FDA certifications, medical device, you need a prescription, but cost-wise, especially when they're heavily discounting the first box and it's a subscription, I think you need to pay them between one and $3 for that first box. And so first of all, like, if you're clicking on the ads you probably wear contacts that, that ad itself probably acts as a filter and then it's just a question of if you have a prescription or you'll need to get one and if you want to try those and then if you're comfortable with the price point so hubble maybe it's medium because you may need to go get a prescription if you have a prescription for a different brand you're not eligible but once you know you want to try it and it's going to cost you a couple bucks Like generally that's pretty low consideration. Like Birchbox might be another example. I think they often have two for one discounts. A box costs 12 or 13 bucks, depending where you go. And and people are comfortable. Oh yeah, I want to try this. I want to try it for this price point. You know, it costs less than I'm going to spend on lunch. Like I can make this decision quickly. On the other end of the spectrum, I'll use one that we've spent a lot of time on recently. There's been a rise in fresh pet food so companies like the Farmer's Dog, Ali, Nom Nom Now.
1: That's a great name.
0: <laughs> yeah. Everybody used to buy kibble at a very discount price for their dogs. And then these companies have been coming in saying, hey, actually, you care about your pet's health just like your own. Fresh pet food is much healthier. Your dog's going to love it. On and on, people love their pets. But the price point comparatively is like three to eight X what you were paying before in some cases. And if your dog is very large and consumes a lot of food, that's just a huge amount of absolute dollars. So mm-hmm. there's a much longer journey of education. Wow. I've been comfortable with this pet food for five years. Why should I even think about switching to like, Oh man, it's going to cost me this. Can I afford that to like, you know what? Let me try it. First box is discounted. Let me see if my pet actually likes it. If I notice some difference. And then I'll decide, if that's, if that's going to pass muster for me. And that first that first swipe could be $50, $100, $200 in that case. And so those are two examples on opposite sides of the spectrum. The big thing we think about in either case in terms of strategy is what level of intent does our prospective audience have about this product? And we will we'll almost create like a bullseye, like concentric circles based on level of intent. So the center of the bullseye will be someone who's already purchased or maybe they've gone to the site and added the product to their cart. And we, we've tracked that you know, using a pixel and we've identified that audience. And we're like, man, they're right on the cusp. The question we need to answer for them is like, why now? Why, how do we activate that? Like why do it now versus continuing to stay close? And then you can imagine going to the outer circles, people have been to the site, but they haven't added to cart. You know, People have not been to the site, but they read one of our articles about the product. People know nothing. And when you're in those outer rings, typically people will dismiss really in-your-face hard sell type ads, but they they are often open to just learning more. Even if you're trying to convert them relatively quickly, like you'll come and and we're going to speak about content with content that's like, learn about this company disrupting blah, blah, blah industry, or like learn the new angle on your pet's health, you know, in that dog food one the FDA came out with something talking about the actual dangers of some of the worst sort of like chemical laden old school pet food. And so we were like, man, this is an easy entry point for people to just like, become aware that there's a different solution. And this might be a thing that they should consider. And so I can get it, you know, you can, you can sort of tell me how deep you want to go in this, but level of intent is definitely our key segmentation mechanism.
1: Okay. Got it. So that's why I see ads that some, are, some say learn more and that they might have a catchy headline saying like, yeah, I, I've 100% seen those Hubble ads. that says the company disrupting the contact industry. And I've definitely seen... So in that case, is, if I were to click that ad, would that take me to an a ungated piece of content on the website that is meant to educate? Or is it a converting landing page?
0: Yeah, good question. We'll often test many different variations within what you described. But for us, we're we're putting content out there both from the brand itself, from review sites that we own and operate, and also from like third-party, maybe known brand sites that we've commissioned to be published, all with the goal of acquiring new customers, always moving toward this revenue event, activation and growth, but also meeting people where they are in the journey. And so the typical path would be like, like an interesting one is if you say the name of the company in the headline, if you say learn how Hubble is disrupting, you'll actually have a lower click-through rate than if you say how learn how this company is disrupting, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because there's mystique to the this company. But you'll also get some clickers who are like, oh, the company's Hubble, cool. And then they'll just move on with their lives. Whereas in the second version, you you have higher intent people coming through. Yeah. And then you know, the, the question of where's the content coming from, there's different trust profiles and people's expectations around how like, biased or salesy something will be depending on the source. So what we're often doing is using a third-party review site with all the appropriate disclosures around sponsored content, but hiring independent reviewers to review the product, follow you know, all the FTC rules around that, and then either compare it, do like a first-person testimonial, it may be video content, like an unboxing paired with a transcript. It may be a listicle, five reasons why, you know, this might be exciting for you. And generally there's certain types of content that lend themselves more toward activation. So we're, we're always really keeping an eye on shortening the funnel and like bringing people toward conversion. But yeah, tactically, there's a lot of things we think about, including even what's the call to action? Where is it? Mm-hmm. How much urgency are we pushing? You know, th- those are the variables.
1: Yeah, I just have a question and we'll move we'll move on to how content and direct response actually work really nicely hand in hand, but I I wanted to ask you specifically about like how you see ads changing as these new privacy laws are coming into play. You don't need to give me the the exact details of how you're going to do it because I know that's a very that's probably a proprietary thing that everyone's trying to figure out right now. Yeah. But are direct response ads Going to go based on targeting and and user data going to exist in in the future, or is this a moment in time when those are are possible?
0: Yeah, it's going to change for a while now. I don't know how to, easy is a strong word, but it's it's been somewhat easy for companies to put a reasonable ad with their value prop to imitate someone else's you know tagline, testimonial, whatever. And trust Facebook's algorithm to allocate that ad to the right audiences and drive reasonably good performance. And Facebook had this incredible data set. You know we advertise on on all digital platforms, social, paid search, google Google properties. But Facebook and Instagram are still the biggest. And they really leaned on Facebook's algorithmic knowledge of what people purchase mm-hmm. off-site, even if they hadn't purchased your product before, let's say you sell shirts. If they've purchased from like an analogous brand, an analogous retailer, Facebook knows that and they'll allocate impressions thoughtfully. With these privacy changes, generally that signal from the whole broader internet is going to be weakened or dampened. And so the stuff that's going to matter, which I don't necessarily think is a bad thing, is going to be almost a little bit of the old school marketing of like creative, clearly communicating the value prop, like finding your audience and, and could like segmenting your messaging specifically for different groups. Like we did some of that anyway, but as you leaned more on Facebook's algorithm, the value of differentiation was reduced. It was sort of like, we'll throw a lot of stuff at the wall and Facebook will help you direct it toward what sticks. I think there's still gonna be direct response. Measurement is gonna become more important. You won't be able to lead on the platforms. You're gonna to need to do that on a first party basis. And then, yeah, I think it'll still be a lot about testing, but it, there will be more put into uh, like brand affinity, sentiment, meeting certain audiences at the right place, and maybe to the discussion about content, explaining the value prop in more depth as like a step in the funnel.
1: Yeah, because you were talking about uh, consideration before. And so if someone's in that consideration phase and they've gone to your website from an ad and are now recognize your logo maybe and know what you're about, that's when you can complement direct response stuff with maybe email marketing or better or like SEO kind of organic content as well.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think I think there's like a top of mind aspect to content. And then again, the, like the big question for us is typically, why? Do, why should someone do this now? And so that could be like there's a sale that's gonna expire at a certain point. That could be like, there's some new angle to the product that you weren't thinking about before. Mm. And now upon reading this, you get it. It could be that the product has evolved. Like one of, our, one of our most powerful content marketing moments was we partnered with Birchbox for a long time. In 2019, the product evolved quite a bit. They, they redid their product and they redid their pricing. It became more expensive which is generally like probably a, a terrifying thing for brands that have had a certain price point for a long time. Yeah. And the most powerful ad and funnel we had off the back of that price change for months was, hey, learn about the new Birchbox and, and like how it stacks up. And we had a piece of content that was an independent reviewer that did an unboxing, compared it to Ipsy, to BoxyCharm. There's all these beauty boxes in that space. At the new price point, you got more value, more premium brands. And consumers, that was the question on their mind. And so so why now? It was like, well, they needed to know if this new version had value. That was the why now thing. And it was like 50 60% of our acquisition volume flowed through that funnel, much less than the brand itself. This was like you know, on a, a site we run, that's almost like a light version of Buzzfeed. That's like lifestyle content. And so, yeah, I, I think some of it is situational. You know, mm-hmm. we, to give another example, we, we work with stars Lionsgate on their OTT products. So stars answer to HBO max or Hulu. We've worked with them for many years and that's the same thing. It's like what content exists now? Cause it's a content driven business that I want to watch. So if it's the new season of some show they've heard of, there's a new theatrical, it's like, why now? Because this is here now, come check it out. And so if if brands don't want to be heavily promotional, there's many other ways to answer that question. And we often try to help highlight the right value props so consumers take the plunge. Then then it's typically up to the brand to prove value and create loyalty.
1: Right, right, right. I really like that idea of using direct response and content like organic channels at the same time to both push towards the same message of here's why now is the right time for you to buy. That seems really that that seems to make a lot of sense to me because if I'm kind of as I alluded to in the intro, some people absolutely despise ads and they go out of the way to avoid them. And then some people are naive and love clicking them and they'll just do whatever. Yep. So that strategy seems to appeal to both sides. Like it's not pushy; it doesn't need to be pushy to the people who don't like being pushed. But it also has those those the essence of direct response that allows people to make decisions based on what they need right then.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And email and other things like that are a great way to like reinforce that. Like that Birchbox example, their CEO Katya sent a great letter to the community about like. How how she cared about continuing to give value and how the product was evolving, and that was very much in your sort of organic email, you know, SEO bucket.
1: Yeah, yeah, those are gonna those are changing as well too. It's it's all evolving, sometimes slowly, sometimes quickly. So it'll be interesting to see how it all all plays out. Are there any channels or or like interesting opportunities that you're seeing right now that you're 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 exploring or or interested in exploring?
0: Yeah, on the media side, I'm like. Pure, you know, like digital. We've done a lot more in the past twelve months with Snap and TikTok than we had previously. I think there's a couple drivers. One, both us as a business that's heavily dependent on Facebook, and then direct to consumer companies, many of which Facebook maybe eighty percent of their marketing dollars. I think the last year just made clear the value of diversifying and and having more balance between that. And I think two more more recently. With the signal loss potentially hitting Facebook disproportionately because of iOS 14 privacy, those other platforms have much lower CPMs. You know, the big question for us is how much does it cost to get in front of someone? So that's that's your CPM, so cost per impression. And then based on targeting, segmentation, the algorithms these different platforms have, how well can you harvest consumer demand? And so we use this acronym APM. It means acquisitions per impression. It's generally yield. It's like click-through rate plus conversion rate. How many sales can we drive from X number of impressions on these platforms? And so with APM being shakier as these algorithms are all going to have to react to weaker signal, lower CPMs are pretty appealing. And so you're paying like a third of the cost that you're paying on Facebook right now on Snap, and maybe you're paying a quarter on TikTok. And so even though those are nascent ad platforms, different demographics, there's a bunch of strikes. It's been exciting to diversify out there and and just take advantage of like lower CPMS and more opportunity to just market more effectively and get native to those platforms. Beyond those two, you know, Google paid search that's always a great place where consumers are sharing their intent and it's not as dependent on their algorithm because you just you search for what you want and it's an efficient marketplace. So Google search, Google shopping, and then yeah, more expansively this whole universe of sort of direct response, sort of more upper funnel channels that drift into content like podcasts, like connected TV or OTT, even like Spotify has expanded their offering, their ads offering recently. Like, I think that whole universe has some of the measurement that direct response advertisers like, but also has broader reach and a different type of targeting and, and to some degree, the ability to get ubiquitous or go big that everyone loved about TV and billboards yeah. and whatever else in the past. So that that's a category ampers hasn't gone as deep into date, but we're definitely ramping up our, our participation, and we see direct to consumer companies heavily investing in.
1: Yeah, it, it seems to me like anyone who's able to aggregate an audience that is away from the major kind of advertising platforms, those are the people who kind of have. Uh, a real value to advertisers, because it's not dependent on algorithms, really. It's just like this person has managed to build a website that gets a million people a month. And if you want to show ads there, you can show ads there. Or as we kind of get into those more organic channels of like influencer marketing or email newsletters or podcasts and stuff like that, it's like there's there's a huge value in like owning your audience. But then it's cool for as a problem to try and be solved is how do we? do that in a way that's not gonna like ruin the brand and and make everyone all the all the free viewers upset.
0: Yeah, it's exactly your last point. It's like ensuring that whatever's produced is native to the platform and doesn't feel jarring or like, you know, those display ads or pop-ups, like that is not a world we generally live in. And, And and like when we see someone going too heavy at that, it's often like companies Larger companies doing more of a digital transformation, we're like, well, I haven't even looked at this, but I'm pretty sure I can generate a lot more yield just by repurposing those dollars. I think, you know, one thing to keep myself honest here, because I'll slightly contradict what I said about Snap and all those things. Facebook still and Google still have such a unique combination of scale and ROI. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it it, it depends how far a company is in their journey. If someone's only spending 50 dollars $100,000 a month and they have a product with mass appeal and they're coming to me talking about diversifying channels, my instinct first is like, well, no, let's get more yield out of whatever you're doing. And it's probably Facebook or Google at that point. Once you 5 or 10x that and you're really... The, the efficient frontier, the next customer you're acquiring is proportionally quite expensive. Then I, I suggest that putting energy into diversification. But like... Mm-hmm still, you know, F- Facebook and Google are, are still the kings of this. And if you look, I mean, it's pretty wild. All the growth in e-commerce and e-commerce spending that happened in the past year, something like 75% of it still went to the two of them Yeah, because I, that's that's still by far the biggest game in town.
1: I'd love to hear a little bit more about that idea of, say, you I, I can't remember exactly the numbers. I think you might've said like $50,000 a month in like ad spend on let's say they're doing they're spending $50,000 a month on Facebook yeah are there kind of rule of thumbs thresholds of like or how do you measure the the yield that someone's getting from those channels in terms of like oh there there's still there's still room to to go deeper before having to open up a new channel
0: yeah we'll we'll look at benchmarks at each stage of the funnel so we'll look at how their click through rate compares to comparables from from our portfolio. We'll look at how their you know landing page to add to cart rate compares and how their checkout rate compares. And generally, unless those things are amazing and their their mo- their their last thousand dollars spent is highly inefficient, there's a lot of wood to chop there. And we say let's maintain our focus here. The way we actually do it on Facebook, and this may get slightly technical, but we use, we use deciles, so we'd say, we'll, we'll break up each 10% of the budget you're spending and see how efficient it is. And typically your most efficient 10% is like, customers that look like, like your existing customer set, enthusiasts, they've already added the product to their cart, they just need a little nudge, very efficient. And then, you know, your last 10%, probably like broad audiences, people who don't know anything about this, maybe they don't even want it, they're not in the market, they're not eligible probably pretty inefficient, but we'll look at the shape of that curve. And if it's really steep, we're typically like, all right, we think you're doing something wrong. Let us help elongate that. And if it's less steep, you know, then, then depending if there's still, if it's still attractive ROI at the end or not, that's when we'll ask the question about diversifying channels, but it's, it's really an activity in benchmarking and, in most cases, we find some opportunity, but also keep in mind, we built this whole machine to assume risk and like be the best at this, so people can be doing a, a fairly good job independently and, and grow pretty big.
1: I think I'm seeing your uh, your trader brain at work here as you answer those questions and the uh, formulas you guys have figured out to to make it work
0: <laughs> yeah we we have to when when we are Criticized, and I somewhat take it as a, a flattering comment, but we'll be called scientists. People will be like, Well, you have great scientists, but like, you know, help me. It's, it's someone often like a CMO who's been a CMO for a long time who grew up in like a different era of this, and they want us to communicate it skillfully. Like, mm-hmm. cool, here's all these deductions we've made. Well, here's what we actually need to go do, and here's here's right, how right. this this message resonates with your audience. But yeah, we're, we bring a very analytical approach to it. And I think generally it's, it's always art plus science. Like you you can't one without the other only goes so far.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a great transition to, to my last question here. What is a skill or a mindset that you're really looking for as you make new hires in your, in your organization?
0: Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So we've invested in a crazy amount into both like hiring and, and training. It's just, I think it's a thing we all love. We get proud of. We did an alumni panel earlier today. We have now a hundred alums running growth teams, working at Facebook, Google, VC. Like we're super proud of it. And we, we hire for like aptitude, not particular skills. So we don't actually care if someone has run Facebook or Google campaigns before. We look at analytical reasoning. So like comfort with quantitative decision-making and and making deductions. We look at communication skills and the abilities to, to learn and collaborate. And then we look at like grit, resourcefulness, hustle, this sort of more entrepreneurial trait, because again, we constantly need to stay ahead of the market and come up with new innovative ways, you know, to capitalize on this dynamic environment. So we hire a lot of people out of school and invest in training them in both hard and soft skills. So think like, Excel modeling, Facebook media buying, Google, like best practices there, conversion rate optimization, but then also soft skills like people management, like communicating complex data in simplified terms and, and team leadership and, and collaboration. And so the thing we're really proud of, that's one entry point. We have another one for like MBAs or people often coming from strategy consulting or, or banking or other disciplines where they've managed teams or they've owned the P&L and we're teaching them growth marketing. But in both cases, like we invest a ton in in making those people homegrown talent, teaching them and like the big, the GMs, the senior directors owning our three big verticals of subscription, multi-skew e-commerce, entertainment. They're all people who've been at Ampush seven plus years, which by the way is crazy in, in this environment and, you know, have such domain expertise paired with the ability to go do that. So yeah, if people, if they want to tackle very dynamic problems, if they like the mix of like mad men and math men, you know, that's kind of like the the old school marketing plus the optimization, the quantitative stuff you're picking up on. Yeah. They want an environment where they can really like take risks because that's what we need to succeed. This is it. And generally we try to filter for that and, and recommend, or, you know, we're, we're very candid with people. If we're like, I don't think this is going to work, but I think you're going to be awesome over here. We'll we'll tell our candidates that.
1: That's, that's great to hear. That's, that's a, that's kind of the 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 new frontier of of skill set is being equal equal side art and science.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean everybody starts from somewhere, you yeah. know, so we'll let people spike. But yeah, we we make sure we assemble our teams so we have a good balance.
1: Well this has been awesome, John. I really appreciate you taking the time to go into detail about uh, all things direct response and revenue moments and everything like that 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 is for me, I'm still trying to get my head around. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time to explain it in that much detail. If you want to learn more about Ampush and uh, all the cool projects they've got going over there, it's ampush.com. And you can also reach out to John on LinkedIn and tell him that you, you heard about him through this. <laughs> Thanks yeah. a lot, John. This has been great.
0: Yeah. Thank you very much, Stuart. This has been a lot of fun and uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully of value for you and your listeners.